So like we talked about, we're going to continue in, uh, in, our, in our look at Matthew. We've made it to Matthew 13. We've committed for the entire year of 2022 uh, to walk through the book of Matthew. And uh, each, we've, we've broken down the book of Matthew into these little mini-series along the way. And while we've reached a point that is going to better explain a topic that we've been talking about the whole time, and I kind of set that up already, um, the book of Matthew is so focused on kingdom, and for the next little bit here, we're actually getting into a series of parables that Jesus taught that actually help us understand what this kingdom life is all about. And so uh, that's where we're going to be today. Lisa kicked us off last week um, by, kind of t- by giving us an overview of what kingdom is all about, uh, and we're going to dive back into it today with a, with a parable. So I want to kind of set the stage for us. Um, because my guess is that if you've been in church for, for any amount of time, um, this is a parable that you've probably heard many, many times before. And we're going to kind of take a little bit different approach to it um, this morning. So hopefully uh, that will speak to you as well. But I want to set the stage because I kind of want to put us into the shoes of the disciples at this particular point to try to, try to see if we can understand where, what they might be thinking, where they might be coming from. So where we are on the map, Chuck, if you could throw up that map for me. Um, we, are it, we are on the... Um, on the Sea of Galilee, which is in northern Israel there, that's where Jesus does most of his teachings, almost all of his, many of his miracles up in that section too. Um, it's an area of, uh, in Israel that's known for its agriculture. Um, the Sea of Galilee, the lake there, can, can provide water in those spaces, and there's a lot of uh, fertile ground, and particularly at the south of Galilee. And so Jesus and his disciples are sitting around the Sea of Galilee there, uh, and he begins to teach them. He's surrounded by a crowd as well, and he begins to teach them, and he teaches them this story. So that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake, Such the lake being the Sea of Galilee. So if you haven't seen the Sea of Galilee before, uh, if you're thinking large sea, uh, not the right meant to, it's a lake. It's a small body of water, uh, surprisingly small uh, if you've ever been there. So he's sitting by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around them that he got into a boat and sat in it. While all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he scattered the seed, some fell among the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on the rocky places, which did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still others fell on good soil, or produced a crop a hundred or sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now this is a parable that we've taught many, many times before. My guess, like I said, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard a sermon on this parable. I think I've actually taught this parable here before, maybe. I know I have somewhere. Sometimes it's hard. They mix together. But rather than focus on the parable today, I actually want to focus on the line that comes right after it. Because in verse 10, it says this, Then the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to people in parables? Which is is an interesting question in and of itself, but then if we add Jesus' answer to it as well, it gets even more weird. Because Jesus replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. It's a weird phrase. And so often when we preach this parable, because what happens is actually, if you were to read the whole little segment here, 
Jesus tells the parable of the sowers. The disciples come to him and say, hey, why do you talk in parables? He says this weird phrase. Then he goes back and explains the parable of the sower. It's this, and so usually when we teach it, we teach the parable, we skip the middle part because it's hard, and then we, then we go to the explanation and just teach it like that. But I want to camp out kind of in this section here today. I want to, I want to, what I want to do is I want to spend some time talking about just parables in general. Why would Jesus talk about parables? Two, how do, how do, how do the, the Jewish rabbis interpret parables? Then I want to loop us back around to the parable of the sower and explain it that way. So it's kind of going to be our roadmap today. So, like I said, what I want to do is I kind of want to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. So first, what we have here is it's important to understand who the disciples are. They're, they're a group of Hebrew school dropouts. We've talked it here before, but the way a rabbi would usually select his disciples, it's very, very common for a rabbi to have disciples, but usually how it would go is that every Jewish young person, would, or young man, sorry, would go to a form of elementary school, right, where you'd learn the Torah, where you'd learn the basics of the Jewish faith. Now, from that group of students, only the best of the best would be selected to go on and continue their learning. Uh, everybody else would go work in whatever job their, their family did. From then, from the, the, those who were selected to go to the Pharisee school, then from the best of the best of them, a rabbi would select his disciples. So when we, we look at Jesus' disciples, though, what are they all doing when he calls them? Other things, right? None of them are in Hebrew school, meaning they weren't the best of the best, meaning they were, if they were, they were fishermen, they were Hebrew school Flunk up. They didn't get chosen to follow the rabbis. So we have a group of relatively young men who are not known for their academic prowess, and they're following Jesus around as, as a rabbi, which is a very prestigious position for the disciples to be in. Now, at this point, by the time we get to this story, they've seen some amazing things. They've seen people healed. They've seen miracles be done. They've seen demon cast out. They've seen people raised from the dead even, water turned to wine, all of that kind of stuff. They've seen some amazing things. And so they're, and at, the, at this point, they're really starting to engage in their role. I got to imagine when they're first called, there was a little bit of shell shock, right? Why would you call me? Uh, and then how do I catch up to speed on what I should be doing in this particular section or this particular vocation? I imagine when they, when they started following Jesus, they'd hear him talking about things and realize they didn't understand them very well. And, and I can imagine that if that was me, at first I would be like, well, it's because I didn't finish Hebrew school. I, hopefully, I can catch up and eventually I'll understand more of what he's saying even though it's really confusing. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but for me, that's an easy jump to make in my mind. But then it, then there, then it comes to this point where they've engaged with Jesus long enough and now they're sitting on the edges of the Sea of Galilee and they hear him tell this story. And they see that there's all these other people around them too because it says there's large crowds and as Jesus finishes his story, the disciples realize that no one knows what he's talking about, right? And we actually see that happen often in the New Testament where they'll go, sometimes the disciples like to pull Jesus aside and go, hey man, um, I know like these people probably don't get it, but like just make sure we do, right? They take him to the side to make sure that nobody hears it. But at this point, they finally decide to say something to Jesus. That you tell, Jesus, you tell these stories. You talk in these, these the, it's, you teach in this way uh, that's confusing and hard to really understand what you're saying. And so they come up to him and they just ask, uh, why do you speak in parables? Because we're not getting it. 
I think that's such an important question because I wonder how many of us have ever felt that same way. That we don't get to hear Jesus speak audibly like the disciples did, but I, my guess is that there has been some point in your life that as you read through Scripture, you wondered why Jesus had to say it that way. Why he had to use those images. Why he didn't just come out and say it more straightforward, right? Wouldn't that be easier than having to wrestle through these, these strange stories about strange things? Maybe perhaps you've been in a section of your life in which you've wanted a clear answer. I have to make a decision between this and that. And you go to Scripture and what you find is a story instead. And you wonder, God, why can't you just be more straightforward? Maybe it's in your prayer life where you're just trying to listen to what God has to say to you and it doesn't ever seem to be simple or easy. It seems complicated or confusing. I think that's where the disciples were. They come up to Jesus and say, hey, why do you need to speak in parables? So what I want to do this morning, and we'll get back to this crazy part about what Jesus was saying here in a minute too, but in order to understand this, we first need to understand a little bit about how Jewish rabbis taught and what, they, uh, and what they were trying to communicate. And so I want to give you some tools to approach Scripture with. Um, like I had already said, it's important to remember that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, which I think um, for some of us, you're like, duh, obviously he was. But it, it's also important to realize that even though he was the best Jewish rabbi, he also used a lot of the same tools that regular Jewish rabbis did as well. We see it throughout Scripture, and that's probably the case here as well. Because Jewish rabbis taught in a certain way. The best of them would tell stories that would work on different levels all at once. And we know that this is something that Jesus was particularly skilled in. And so I want to teach you an acronym this morning. Now, the acronym itself was created in the 13th century, but it does give us the tools to understand how a first century Jewish rabbi would have thought. So the idea, the, the, this thought process wasn't put into acronym form until the 13th century, but it's the same thought process as the first century. And so the, the acronym is a word called, it's, a, it's the word pardes, right? Which I know doesn't mean a lot to you in English, um, because it's really a Hebrew acronym, so you've got to read it backwards, which would then make it what? <laughs> Searp, which is way more understandable. You get it. Um, <laughs> but, but it breaks down uh, the different aspects uh, of what uh, is included in these storytelling, um, these parables, the way that the Hebrew rabbis would tell the story. So first, it's the word peshat. And what this word particularly, it's the P of the, of the pardes, and, uh, and what this word means, is it means surface or straightforward. Whenever the rabbis were telling a story, they would understand that there would be a, a particular meaning that would come across right away. That there would be something about the story that everyone would understand immediately. It was the easy, the simple, the straightforward understanding, uh, the surface meaning of the particular story. It's the literal, direct meaning of the text. Now, this is interesting because this particular understanding for some people in the Christian space is where they actually stop, right? That most Christians only ever study the Peshat of the story. Actually, my, I'd, be, I'd be willing to venture out there that some of you might have even grown up in a tradition that says the only way to understand a parable is the Peshat. Anybody out there like that? That the way to understand Scripture is in its simplest, most basic understanding, and that's it. Nobody. Well, good, good, because not, that's not the best way, so I'm glad. Jen should have raised her hand, but she didn't, so there's at least one. <laughs> so, sorry. 
Oh, I just needed an example. Appreciate it. I'll pay for that later. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, I want to be really clear here. Uh, Peshat is a good thing. It's easy for us to demonize it as a simple, un- unmeaningful thing. That's not true. Uh, it is the beginning of the understanding of a particular story or parable. By the way, this acronym can be applied to Scripture uh, broadly, um, but, more, but it most foc- focuses best on a parable. And so... Uh, Peshat is a good thing. It's part of the whole. We need to have that surface understanding if we're going to understand the complexity and the bigness of the story uh, as a whole. Um, it, it, Peshat simply asks the question, what does this passage say and what does it mean? What is the straightforward understanding? If you hand it to someone the, for the first time, how are they going to understand this story? What did they see? Now, the only, Peshat, especially when the story was originally told to its original hearers, would have been the easiest thing to understand. Now, it's a little bit harder for us in the 20th century uh, because we live in a different context. So some of the work that we have to do when we're trying to understand the simple, straightforward meaning of a particular text is to actually do work on the context. Uh, and the parable we just looked at is a perfect example of that. Because if, we, if you were sitting on the lake, like the disciples were, around the Sea of Galilee, or if you were any one of these crowds, this parable would have sparked a whole bunch of easy, straightforward ideas for you. Because like we had already said, that area of the Sea of Galilee was known for its agriculture. And so for Jesus to tell an agricultural story would have clicked with all of them. There, was, there are meanings that they would have grasped that maybe we can miss. See, produce from Galilee was shipped all over the Roman world. Produce that Jewish people would have understood to be direct blessings from God. Um, In the book of Deuteronomy, when it says, I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? I learned something that I didn't know in Israel a little while back. Tom knows where I'm going with this, right? When you think of milk and honey, um, what do you usually think of? Honey as in bees, right? It's not the honey that God's talking about. I don't think I saw a single bee. There probably were some, but it's not what you really see in Israel. Um, What they're talking about there are dates, date honey, Right? There are palm trees with dates all over the place. So a land flowing with milk and honey is milk, probably goat, um, and then date honey. Right? But anyway, but in following up in that passage in, in the book of Deuteronomy, God promises the Israelites seven um, blessings in the land. Right? He promises them wheat and barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. And all of these things are produced in the region around Galilee. So, as the, so the people listening to Jesus in this story would have realized that we're, we live in an agricultural space, that, our, that our, this agriculture is shipped all over the Roman world, and that this agriculture that we have is a direct blessing from God. All of those things would have been the straightforward, clicked-in understanding uh, for these people in that space. The farming resonate, metaphor would have resonated with these people for other reasons as well. The rocky path. If you've been to Israel or go someday, it won't take you long to understand the rocky path, right? If, if the topsoil there is thin in a lot of places, and so if you pack it down, it's hard, right? It's not like a, a path that you walk through through like a pine forest or something where the path is soft. Uh, no, if you're walking on the path, it is rock. It's a very, very rocky place. And so that, those rocky paths would have clicked immediately. The, the all-around rocky ground, which is the next part of the parable, Right? The Israel soil was, uh, was formed through volcanic activity, meaning two things, that it does have a very fertile top layer, but it also has remnants of a lot of rock as well. Salt is, um, is a volcanic rock that you can find all over Israel. And so if you're going to actually produce anything in your fields, you've got to spend a whole lot of work clearing out all of these rocks. 
The, the idea of thorns. There are thorns everywhere in Israel. And they're like these big, nasty ones too. There are a bunch of different kinds, but like if you just walked through a field, the chance of scraping your legs are really, really high. If you don't care for your field, thorns grow up very, very quickly. And then finally, good soil. As we mentioned, we're in the region of Galilee where good soil is kind of their thing. And so all of these metaphors, the straightforward meaning, uh, would have popped out right away. At its most basic, what Jesus is saying is take care of your soil and good things will happen. If you prepare your fields like, like you people in Galilee already know, if you get the rocks out, if you keep the thorns away, the soil here is good and will produce a, a crop that spreads across the world. This is the basic understanding of this parable and all of those hearers would have understood it right away. It's, pro- it's the way that we most often teach this parable, right? That just take your heart is the soil, keep it good and good things will grow. It's a great basic Peshat understanding of this story. But a good rabbi didn't tell a story only for its surface meaning. He would tell it in a way that would, that would force you to engage with it on a deeper level as well. Because he starts with Peshat, right? the, the, the basic, straightforward understanding of a passage, and would move into then something known as Remez, which in Hebrew literally means hints. And you actually will see this in Jesus' parable. You see it in the parable of the sower in a really big way. Uh, You see it in almost all of his, well, not you do. You see it in absolutely all of his parables. And what these hints are are hints to something from the Old Testament. A good rabbi would often tell a story and would sneak in and actually intentionally sneak in because he wouldn't tell his audience which parts were the quotes of the Old Testament, sneak in Old Testament references into his story to deepen the meaning of the the parable. The rabbi wouldn't tell you which part of the passage was that because the point was that only the most serious students, those who wanted it, would work out where those passages were and how to connect the dots. So part of the Jewish rabbi's strategy would be to work in these Old Testament references to deepen your parable and then encourage whoever's hearing it to do the work to figure out what those deeper meanings were. See, the straightforward meaning was there. The Peshat was there. The Remez, though, you're supposed to work for. You're supposed to do the work to make the connections between the story that's being told and the Old Testament images that it's showing. The whole audience would have understood Peshat, but only those who do the work understand the Remez, which, again, we saw in the passage from today. When the disciples ask Jesus why he speaks in, in parables, he explains the parables to him. But he explains, them on, he explains it on a Remez level. So we'll read it actually in a little bit. You'll see what he does is he explains it a little bit differently than he tells it. He actually tips off the disciples where to find the Old Testament references to understand the Remez of his parable. <clears throat> because what passages is Jesus referring to? And he gives them clues. When he describes the path, he references Hosea 10. When he references the rocky soil, he's referencing Isaiah 9. When he's talking about the thorns, he's he's, um, alluding to Jeremiah 4. And so what what he's doing in those particular spaces, he's he's saying that these particular passages speak into the truth that I'm trying to express to you in the remez of the parable of the soils. Now you go do the work to, one, understand these passages and, and then understand how they connect to the story I just told wasn't meant to be easy. He would, he would encourage, the, the, the encouragement was for one, the disciples to originally find it on their own. He explains it so they don't have to. 
but then figure out what the base passage actually means and how it applies. This wasn't supposed to be a slow or easy thing. It was supposed to be something they put a lot of work into. Now, we don't have time to look up all of those references this morning, but Jesus is tipping him off to where to find the references by coloring in some of the details. <clears throat> so, when you so essentially, the point of Hermes is when you understand this, the Old Testament reference, you'll better understand that, the story that I just told. You don't get Hermes on a first read. You have to work for it a little bit. It's not easy, but it's rewarding. And sometimes we even do that on a Sunday morning. We'll say, hey, did you see how these two things are connected? And you get one of those aha kind of moments. Okay, so we've made it through the first two parts of the acronym. We have Peshat and we have Ramez. We have the basic, straightforward understanding of a passage. We have the hints towards deeper meaning from the other parts of Scripture. And then there's something called Darash, which literally means to inquire or to seek. What, what Darash is, is the truth that's hidden in the story. It's actually where the word Midrash comes from, if you've ever heard that word before. Uh, what Midrash is, is a collection of Jewish rabbis' understandings of the stories of the Old Testament in particular. Uh, they would debate and argue and wrestle with what all of those stories mean, what were the deeper things trying to be conveyed in those stories, and they're collected in, a, in the Midrash. Um, really fascinating if you ever wanted to study them. And so Dirash, then, is, is that same idea. It's diving into what the parable might be saying into our lives presently. What's the story within the story? How, is the, how, is, how does this parable relate to the way that I'm living my life right now? And what are some deeper, more interesting understandings I can gather about who God is, how it affects me in this particular situation, and what do I do about it? See, it would be the connections that aren't immediately noticed, but come after wrestling with a parable for a long time. The meanings that come from looking at it from all different angles. What are the ways that we could understand what's happening to us in this particular parable? Uh, one of the best uh, uses of Darash, I think, was by Tim Keller when he, does, when he tackles the, um, uh, the um, prodigal son, right? Where he walks you through what it would look like from the perspective of the father. And then he resets and what it would look like from the perspective of this younger son. And then what would it look like from the perspective of the older son. And all of a sudden you see, start to see that there are stories within stories within stories happening inside of this particular parable. There's a straightforward understanding that no matter how far you go away from God, he'll always have, meet you with arms wide open when you come back. That's the Peshat of the, of the prodigal son story. There's a lot of Hermes in that story going back to the Old Testament, but then the Darash is looking at it from all of those different angles to understand how do each, part, each one of these parts speak into my life a little bit differently. How do I relate to the father? How do I relate to the younger son or the older son? The same is true in the parable of the soils that we saw today. That at the first read, you realize that I'm supposed to prepare the soil of my heart to, to be ready for God and to ready to see good things grow. But then you read it again and you're like, I realize there are portions of my life that are a lot like, more like the rocky path, that are hard and that I don't even want to have God touch or look at. Or you start to dive deeper and you realize, oh man, there are probably parts of my life in which I put rocks too to prevent good things from growing. But there's other, there might be another time where you read it and you realize, man, there are some people or instances in my life that are like thorns that choke out the good things that are growing. 
It's going back to the parable over and over and over again to inquire, to seek, to find out what might be a new angle that I can understand the story within the story that God is telling or that Jesus is telling in this case. See, Darash requires even more work than Ramez. It enhances Ramez. It gives you a deeper understanding of the hints from the Old Testament. But, it's, but it forces you to wrestle with the abstract. It's something that you're supposed to continually go back and do over and over and over again to, get, find the, the, to try to get to the very bottom of the depth that the rabbis sing. Which then brings us finally to the S of Pardes, which is the word sad and just literally means secret. Now this can be twisted a little bit to say that there's some like mythical or mystery uh, understanding of what the passage is supposed to be saying and there are some traditions that go down that road. Don't think that's what it means at all. Uh, what sad is, it, it, in, in most, the most basic understanding of it, is that rabbis believed that, there, that each story that was being told, especially if inspired by God, would contain a meaning that can only be revealed by God himself. And what they mean by that is that, <clears throat> is that, uh, that as you're reading the passage, if your heart is open, God will speak to you directly on what he wants you to take out of that particular passage. My guess is it feels a little abstract at first, but if, you're, if you've engaged with Scripture seriously, you've probably actually experienced Sod in your lifetime at one point or another. Have you ever read a passage? Maybe it's a passage you've read hundreds of times before. And some little word or phrase or something that you've never noticed before jumps out to you and speaks into your life in a way you've never seen before. That's sad. That's the, the understanding is that in that particular moment, God was able to use Scripture to speak into your life in a way that's different and unique only to you. It's something that the rabbis couldn't teach, something I can't teach, because it's not, about what, what, how, it's not about me declaring what God has spoken to each of you. It's about you opening yourselves up to hear what he has to say. So the rabbis believe that each parable that was taught contained all four of these things, if your rabbi was good, and Jesus is the best. That each, each parable that, you, that, that, you, that was taught had a, had a basic, pashat, surface, straightforward meaning. If you're going to teach a good parable, you would also enhance it with using Old Testament references that needed to be discovered and explored so we could get a bigger, broader explanation of the parable that we're looking at. The rabbi also required you to wrestle with it for a long time so that you can continue to inquire or seek the darash of the story to the thing that, that all of the stories within the stories that can speak to you in a different way. And ultimately, the goal then is to open your heart up into a space where God can speak directly into it and reveal whatever thing he has for you in that space. Now, when we understand those pieces, let's see if we can answer the disciples' question. Why do you speak in parables, they ask. Let's see if we can understand this part as well. He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Those who have will be given more, and they will have an audience. And for those who do not have, even what they do have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. I actually pulled this part out of the sermon and put it back in this morning because I was watching something this morning and, 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 and all of a sudden this particular passage clicked for me in a way it hadn't the day before and, and the importance of it. 
You see, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I I speak in parables because I want people to do the work of what a parable entails, all four of those particular steps. Because oftentimes, if we speak too straightforwardly, what will happen is all we do is we we, we look to affirm the thing that we already think we know, which is, I know it's confusing, but let me explain. Have you ever gone to Scripture thinking you know something to try to find a proof text to prove that you're right? That's what Jesus is talking about, saying don't do that, right? It's not letting Scripture speak for itself. Though they see, they do not see. Though they hear, they do not understand. He's saying I need to speak in parables because if you're going to get what this thing's all about, you've got to wrestle with it. Otherwise, all I'm going to be doing is affirming the thing you already think you know, and that's gotten us into a really bad space because look at what comes right after the passage we just read. For the people's hearts have been calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and they understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. He's saying to, a, to the, world, the ancient world there, you've already made up your mind on what you think. You've calloused your heart. And so what you think you hear and see is not actually what I'm saying at all. Because if you were listening, it actually might change something for you. I had to put it back in because, God, does that feel a little bit too much like today? Yeah? So people, I, where we already have decided what is and have closed our ears and eyes to, either, to listen to anybody, one, but in particular, let Scripture speak on its own. Jesus says, I speak in parables because you're supposed to know how to deal with a parable and the straightforward meaning is one thing, but if you're going to really get it, the only way you can really understand what I'm speaking is to do the hard work, is to find where I've put hints is to wrestle with it from all these different angles, to open your heart to hear what God, has to be, what God is trying to say to you. And so I want to close today by just putting that into practice. The passage ends like this. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When people hear the message about the kingdom and do not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in their hearts. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocking ground prepares, or refers to people who hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorn refers to people who hear the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to people who hear the word and understand it. They produce a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. So what's the peshat of this passage? Now, we, we've talked a bit about it already, right? We have soil. We talk about all these different kinds of soil which represent our hearts. We have yields. We have paths. Right? Our hearts are like the soil. This is the basic understanding. There are parts of our lives that are... And what the, I think one of the best ways to understand this, soil, this on the... On, um, and the most basic understanding, too, is to realize that a field is not all or nothing. There might be parts of the field that have rocks in them and parts that don't. Same is true with our hearts. So what Jesus is asking us to do at its most straightforward meaning is take a look at your heart. Are there areas in which they become hard and you can't even hear the word anymore? Are there areas in which there are rocks so things aren't growing in the way they ought to be? Are there, are there things that are choking it out? 
Another thing that I think is interesting about, the, about anybody who's ever farmed before is that every time you plant a new crop, what do you have to do to the soil? You have to till it up, don't you? Which will reveal hidden things. Maybe you thought an area of your life was good soil only to realize when you turned it over, it's filled of rocks. The basic straightforward pashat of this is that we all need to take a good look at our hearts and figure out what kind of soil that we have. <clears throat> the beauty, uh, I think one of the best the most beautiful things of this, uh, of, um, of this uh, parable is that it helps us understand just the basic nature of faith. What it says is your responsibility is not to believe harder. It's not to force faith to grow in your life. Your responsibility is just to tend your heart, and God will do the rest. He's the one who throws the seed. He's the one who causes it to grow. You just prepare the soil so that it can flourish which I think is just a beautiful, straightforward understanding of this particular passage. What's the remez in the passage? Well, we already talked about that too, with the ties to Old Testament prophecy. Jesus wants, wants his hearers to understand they're part of a bigger story, that these ideas that he's teaching are ones that were taught in the Old Testament as well. This idea of cultivating ourselves to live a godly life has been going on throughout history. There's actually a ton of Hermes in this story as well. There's, there's ties to Isaac and God's faithfulness in that place. The numbers of 10, 30, 6, or 10, 60, 30 are all related to the Old Testament as well. I'm actually going to act like a rabbi and tell you all to go find those now, right? Do the work. We'll see if anybody does. I hope you do. Come talk to me if you do. What's the Darash? Like I said, already, and I kind of actually jumped the gun because what I said with the Peshat about tilling the soil was the point I had for the Darash, and so now I've already wrecked that, I'm sorry. But the, idea, but the Darash of this story is to recognize uh, that, that we can till up the soil and we can, that we can realize there might be parts of our lives that, would, that need work that are a little bit different than what we thought they were. Might realize that, there, that, that, we might, that at certain parts of our life we relate to different parts of the soil in different kinds of ways. And finally, we do all of that work so that we can finally get to the end and we say, hey, we've got a, I think we've got a good understanding of what Jesus is trying to communicate here, both on a straightforward level and in its ties to the Old Testament. We've wrestled with all of the different angles and how it could apply to us in our hearts in different areas in that way, all to open us up to be able to best hear what God might be saying to each of us individually. Because each time a parable is spoken, it's not meant to just be thought about or wrestled with. Parables aren't there just to become an intellectual exercise in the abstract. They're supposed to open us up into a place where we can hear what God is saying through it to each of us so that we do something about it. And so when we start to understand all of these different parts, maybe God sits here this morning and says, hey, uh, Brent, there's some rocks in your field that we've got to work on. There's some areas that maybe you thought were good soil but actually uh, have thorn seeds ready to grow or, or rocks that need to be removed. Maybe this morning it's saying, Brent, there's some areas where, where you just have shut off and not wanted to deal with. I've had, unfortunately, had that revelation in my life before. Where I just haven't wanted to deal with it, that I've become calloused. I don't know what it would be for you. But my hope is that as you, as you gain a better and deeper understanding of what Jesus is teaching in this parable and, and use that same process for the rest of them as well, my hope is that you can hear individually what he might be speaking to each of you. In those sod moments, we've, talked, we've taught this here before too, 
We've referred to them as kairos moments before. You guys have heard that phrase, maybe you haven't. What kairos is, for those of you who haven't, in Greek, there are two words for time. There's chronos and there's kairos. Chronos is a series of sequential events. It's how we understand time chronologically. This happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. Kairos is a different understanding of time. It's the bigness of time, a moment greater than the sequential events. What, kairos, what a kairos moment is, is a moment that, in which we experience time in a big and deep way. It's sad. It's, it's, saying, it's, it's those moments when we recognize that maybe God is saying something to us. By understanding how to understand Jesus' story, we can, we can experience more kairos moments. And the first part of that is to ask the question, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to me through this parable? What is God trying to speak to me through Scripture? But the second part is equally important because then we follow that up by asking ourselves the question, what am I going to do about it? And so my hope is this morning... This tool can be helpful for you as you read Scripture to recognize that all of these parts are contained in Jesus' teaching. It's why you can read Scripture a hundred times and keep finding new and interesting and amazing things. My hope is that you can approach Scripture, this, this parable too. I actually want to leave you today with a challenge to, to go back to the passage that we just read with this tool and practice it this week. I would love for you guys, if you would, message me or email me any revelations that might come up. If you experience a Ramez moment or a Darash moment or, or if God speaks to you, I especially would love to hear that. The challenge this week is to go do that and I want to see the fruit that comes out of it. If, you, if something really, really good happens and you want some time on stage, I'll, we have that too. So I know, that's in, I know that's intimidating, but here it is. It's there for you. The Bible is a... I, is a beautiful, beautiful book filled with layers and layers of meaning, all meant to draw us into deeper relationship with God and each other. The more work we're willing to do on it, the more of that beauty we'll be able to see. And I want to encourage each of you to do that this week. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize that so often we haven't done the work required to really understand what you were saying. God, I just want to repent for that, to turn away from that. May we be people who diligently work to understand what you're trying to speak into this world, that we don't just approach Scripture or our lives with, with closed eyes and ears, looking for ways to affirm what we already think we know. May our hearts not be calloused so that we can actually hear what you're trying to say to us. May we be open to wherever you lead, even if it's uncomfortable. Maybe we, may we be willing to till our soil and find areas that, we, that may not be as good as we hoped they were. Ultimately, so we can prepare our hearts to hear your voice speaking into our lives in whichever way you desire. Amen.